So much fun to sing the word of God, isn't it? It's a blessing. I could just go home now, but we can't because God commands us to preach the word. Well, there's a young man named Jordan Wilson. He grew up in a Christian home, had a pretty stable Christian family. Mom and dad were believers, grew up in church. When he was in his teen years, he began to lift weights and enjoyed that hobby that some people have. And he enjoyed how it made him feel, soon became a driving passion that he had. He loved the compliments people gave him when they noticed his muscles. And so that pushed him to bulk more. And so he slipped into steroids, started taking that to get more bulk. Then he hurt his knee once, so he didn't want that to hinder him from working out, so he took some pills to help dull the pain. And in his early 20s, Jordan started to live a life of alcoholism, popping pills, and eventually smoking marijuana and crystal meth. And he had a downward downward spiral in his life. He found himself in and out of jail as he would buy drugs, and then he began to sell drugs. And he found himself in a place of depression, of drug addiction, of sexual sin, broken relationships, and frankly, he was hopeless. Jordan was shackled by his sin and his choices. He felt trapped. And the reality is for Jordan that Satan and sin had a death grip on his soul. He was only one overdose away from death. But worse, worse than death was what Jordan knew took place after death. And that was eternal death. And he feared that. You might know a Jordan in your life. Frankly, someone could be listening online or listening here, and you could be like Jordan this morning. You live in the prison of your sinful passions. Your sins are like heavy chains upon your soul that keep you enslaved. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's just your own selfish lifestyle. Maybe it's your anger That causes many problems in your life. Has caused you to break relationships with those in your life. Maybe it's the fetters of worry and anxiety that weigh your soul down so much that you can't even sleep at night. And it could just be that maybe you're in here and you just live in a life without God. And that in itself is empty and miserable. And your guilt and your sin are like chains wrapped around your soul. And Satan is pulling you down with him. Maybe you feel that pull of death upon yourself. And maybe you don't, you don't know what will happen to you after you die. So the question then comes, is there hope? Is there hope for someone like Jordan? Is there hope for someone like you? Are you doomed to live your life and your sin? Are you doomed to live your life as an addict, as an anxious person? Is that just who you are so you just can't change? 
What is the hope that you have that you will live with Christ in eternity? What is the hope for freedom? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that first of all, there is no hope. Pastor Ben, that's not a very good resurrection sermon. This is not starting off well. Well, there's no hope in yourself. There's no hope found in your religion. There's no hope found in your experiences. The only hope found for you is in the Lord of all. In the resurrected Jesus Christ. The answer to those questions, who can save you, is there hope, is found in the one who is over, has overcome sin, who has overcome death, and who is Lord over life and resurrection. So this morning I'm preaching on the lordship of Jesus Christ. The lordship of Jesus Christ means this. It means that he is the owner of everything. And every person must submit their life to his authority. And it's not that we, it's not that we are to make him Lord. No, he already is Lord overall. We are to submit to him as Lord. And in the Lordship of Christ, in submission to him as our Lord, we find salvation. We find freedom. We find forgiveness. We find hope. We find joy. We find purpose. We find life. Paul wrote in Romans 14, 8 and 9. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose again and lived, rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Jesus Christ is Lord. And Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, is a celebration that Jesus is the Lord of all. The purpose of Jesus' death and resurrection was to give you the gift of lordship. That he can be the Lord of your life. And if you call on him as Lord, he can save you from your sins. The lordship of Jesus was the theme here of Peter's message in Acts chapter number 2. Peter got up and he preached to thousands of people. There were many people listening that day, men and women who were shackled by their sin. Some were shackled by their self-righteousness. They trusted their own works and their own religion to get them to heaven. Some were shackled by their greed and their self-centered living. Some of those standing there actually were the ones 50 days previous to that who yelled out, crucify him. And they were the ones who participated in the crucifixion of Christ. All of them standing there were spiritually dead in their sins. And so Peter got up to preach to them. And again, the, th the main theme of his message was this. Because Jesus is Lord, you can be saved and you can be forgiven. You can be saved and you can be forgiven. If you look down in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36, this is the entire sermon that they have recorded here. Luke has recorded here in the book of Acts. This isn't the whole sermon, though. In fact, if you look down in verse 40, you can see Luke, the historian, writes in chapter 2, verse 40, that with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So this was a lot longer sermon than just 23 verses. And if you were hoping I would preach this for 
that length, then I'm going to go with what I interpret happened with Peter here. And that was a little longer than that. And what, what, promoted, what prompted Peter to preach this sermon? Well, there were really two things. One, one thing that prompted him was there were 120 disciples who were going around preaching the gospel in different languages. Languages they did not know. Languages that the people uh, where they were from, that they knew. But they were able to preach the gospel in their languages. And so people were wondering, what's going on? And he was letting them know in verses 14 through 21, the Holy Spirit has come. This is, these are the last days. Someone said to me the other day, they said, why don't we talk more about the last days in our church? Well, we are in the last days. And the church is the center of the last days. And the Holy Spirit is here with us, present in these last days. And our days are soon ending. So he wanted them to know it's the last days. The church is beginning. The second reason he wanted to preach to them was to invite them to be saved by Jesus the Lord. In fact, you'll, you'll see that in verses 22 through 36. And this is our text here this morning. I'm not going to read through it all in one sitting because we're actually going to read through it as I preach through it. But look at verse 21. He introduces this section on the lordship of Jesus Christ in verse 21 by saying, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he talks about the lordship of Christ. He gives five reasons that I'm going to talk about today that proved how Jesus was Lord. And then he concluded his sermon in verse 36. Go down to chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know. In other words, everyone standing before him. For certain that God, that's God the Father, has made him, that's Jesus Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So this sermon, Peter proves to them that Jesus is the Lord, and therefore he's the only one who can save your soul. Now, if you were here for last week's sermon, you learned that the word Lord here is a reference to the Old Testament name for God. In the Old Testament, if you read your English translation, you can see the name for God. There is capital L, capital O. Let's go this way. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that's done by the translators to help us understand that this is the Old Testament name for God, spelled Y-H-W-H. It's four letters, Y-H-W-H. This is the personal covenant name for God. Now, how do you pronounce that? Well, the Jewish people were so afraid of blasphemy that they actually didn't pronounce that name. And so it was just, uh, it was written like that. And then they also use the name Lord in its place. Some have tried to figure out the, how to pronounce it. Some have, through Latin influence, have pronounced it Jehovah. You might have heard that, Jehovah. That's from some Latin influence. Some have taken the vowels from Adonai and put them between Y-H-W-H and pronounced it Yahweh. And so what we're talking about here is that God proved that Jesus is this Old Testament Yahweh, he is the Lord. So five proofs that Jesus is the Lord. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, I pray as we go into your word that Christ will be lifted up. The Holy Spirit will touch hearts. This is not a sermon about us 
or about me. This is about you. And so may you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So proof number one, that Jesus proved to be Lord over all, he proved to be Lord over all creation by his supernatural works. We talked about this last week. Look at verse 22. He preached, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested or proved to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. These individuals, these thousands of people listening, they knew who Jesus was. They heard, some saw the miracles of Jesus. They, they, they knew that Jesus of Nazareth was a real, true, living human being. He was a historical figure. Born in Bethlehem, hidden in Egypt, raised in Nazareth, Nazareth, ministered in Galilee. He truly took on human flesh. Yet, he was, before he was born, and is and always will be, God the Lord. He is truly God and truly man. Remember when the angels announced his birth? These celestial beings were in the sky and announced to the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So yes, he was born he, was a ba- he, is a, he is a human. He was born as a baby, but he is Messiah and Lord. And Jesus demonstrated his humanity every day just by living, right? He ate and he breathed, he worked, but he proved his lordship through his mighty works. And that's what he says in verse 22, mighty works and wonders and signs. Think about this. Every time Jesus healed the sick, Every time he raised the dead, every time he controlled the weather, it was like he was saying, I own all this. I'm the authority over all this. And did you realize that if Jesus is the Lord over all creation, that means that he must be the Lord over you. You're part of the creation. And therefore, we must submit to him. Jesus says, I don't have this in there. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? In other words, if you say that you submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you fully surrender to him. If you say that you're, that Jesus is your Lord, I should say, then you're saying that you fully surrender to him as the Lord. For the youngest child in here, that means that every day when you play and you do school, That means you play under the lordship of Jesus. That means you work hard in school and are honest in school because Jesus is your Lord. For the student in here that's in college, it means you put an honest school day in and you honor your teachers because Jesus is your Lord. Jesus' lordship means that your marriage, your intimacy, your finances, your thoughts, your screen time, your entertainment, your personal life, everything is subject to him. Because, why? Because he is the Lord, which means he has rights to ownership. The story goes of a CEO who decided to build himself a house. And so he hired a builder and bought some land, and he went and built a beautiful house. 
And he decided to go on a long trip away, so he wasn't able to see the house. So he sent one of his employees to basically live in the house, house sit for him, and keep it until he was able to come back from his trip. The CEO came back early from the trip. The house was finished. It was completed. The builder had sent him some pictures, you know, and so he had seen everything. It looked like a beautiful house, and so he was looking forward to seeing it. So he decided he would come for a surprise visit. So he walks up to the house. The door is wide open. So he walks on in. When he walks in, he finds a party taking place. There are young people everywhere. There's drugs. There's alcohol. There's trash everywhere. There's holes in the wall. The appliances have been stolen and taken out. I mean, it, it, there's vomit on the floor. It was just trashed. And down the stairs walks his employee. And the CEO says, everyone, get out of the house. Get out. And he says, you, get out of my house. And this guy was a little bit, you know, intoxicated. Said, what right do you have to come in here and tell me to get out of this house? And he says, because I'm the owner of the house. I'm your boss, and you're fired. <laughs> and what's the point? The point is, is that the CEO gave that house, that employee, to take care of till he came back. And in the same way, God has given you a life. He's given you a body. And we are to honor him with it. We're to glorify him with it. We're to enjoy our life and faith to him. But the reality is, like that employee, our minds have been trashed with sin. Our marriages have been trashed with selfishness. And our hearts are given over to our desires. And there will be a day when we will stand before God. Everyone on this planet will stand before the Lord and give an account for his life. And the Bible says that no one will be able to stand before him and present a perfect holy life. Everyone has sin. In fact, one of the saddest verses, I think, in the Bible is Revelation 21.8, where it says that all cowardly and faithless and detestable and murderers and sexually immoral and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars will have their portion in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In other words, our, we'll physically will die, but there'll be another death where God says, those who have sin, those who have lived lives like this, will be cast away from his presence forever. And friend, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to die to overcome this death, to overcome the second death. And so the second proof then, therefore, is Jesus proved to be Lord over death with his sacrificial death. Look at verse 23. The Bible says, Acts 2, 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God the Father planned this to happen. You, that's the people he's speaking to, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, speaking of the Romans, God raised him up, loosening the pangs, the pain, the agony of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The definite plan of God the Father was to send God the Son to this world to die on the cross for us. And Jesus, when he was on this earth, he clearly told his disciple, this is my plan. My plan is that I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be 
raised on the third day. He taught his disciples that. And remember when he taught his disciples that, how Peter responded? Peter said, no, far be it from you, Lord. That's not going to happen to you. Why did Peter respond like that? Because Peter didn't want to die himself, did he? Peter knew the agony of death. He knew the pain of death. He knew death was the end. At least that's what he thought. Peter didn't want to die because Peter was afraid to die. Death is the most feared event in our world, isn't it? I mean, friends, that's why we've shut down the entire world, right? Because everyone is afraid. Many people, I should say, are afraid to die. In verse 24, he talks about that pain, the agonies of death, the pangs of death. But for the Lord overall, death is not only not the end. Death was, his death was the way to free us from the death that we deserve. Peter would go on later after the resurrection and write this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's us. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus, my friends, he allowed sin. He allowed the pain of sin to wrap its death grip around his body and his spirit on that cross. In the garden of Gethsemane, he allowed the lust of Judas to condemn him to death. He permitted the godless soldiers to condemn him, to take him away, to be condemned. At the council of the high priest, he allowed the lies of false witnesses to bind him. In silence, he submitted as the religious leaders punched him with their fists and slandered them with their mouths. Sin and the pangs of death surrounded Jesus. He allowed this. He permitted this to happen. The disciples fled. Peter lied. The people rejected. The crowds yelled, have him crucified. Herod laughed. Pilate cowered. Soldiers spit. Religious leaders slapped. The Romans stripped him. Guards tortured him with a whip, teased him with a robe, beat him with a rod, pinned him with spikes to a tree. And even murderers on his left and his right mocked him in his plight. The people derided him on that cross, scorned his teachings. The religious leaders taunted him. Save yourself if you're able to. If you truly are who you say you are, come down and save yourself. And what they didn't realize at that moment as he was dying to save them. And at noon, the sun was darkened, and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For those hours in the cross, the Father, God the Father, wrapped the chains of sin around the soul and body of Jesus Christ with the death grip of our sin. It wasn't just the sin of those around him that caused him to die. It was our sin that held him here, held him there. It was our sin that squeezed the blood and the life out of Jesus. We just sang a song, Behold the man upon the cross. My sin upon his shoulders. 
Do you know that? Can you sing with me? Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And as he died, took his last breath, he said, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit to the Lord. Verse 24 says, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So the third proof, Jesus proved to be the Lord overall history with fulfilled prophecy. Do you know it's not possible? It was not possible for Jesus to stay dead. Why? Because he's the Lord. And another reason it was not possible was because it was prophesied. Christ, through the prophets, foretold of his coming. His death and his resurrection were planned and were prophesied from Genesis all the way through Malachi. Through the gospel life of Jesus Christ, you can read the prophecies of Jesus' death and resurrection. And sometimes we think of those prophecies in regard to just the death of Christ. But do you realize that the resurrection of Christ was prophesied as well? That's his point here that Peter makes in Acts chapter 2. In fact, he quotes Psalm 16, a prophecy of the resurrection of Christ. And in Psalm 16, 8 through 11, you can see that text found in, in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 25. In fact, let's read that together. As you read this, it might just seem like David's celebrating the life lived under the authority of God. But actually, there's some more to it. Look at verse 25. Acts 2, 25, for David said concerning him, then he quotes Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That's Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And again, if you just read that, it seems like David's just singing a testimony to the Lord. But then there's some parts of that that are kind of strange. Like, it's hard to understand. Look down in verse 27. David says, God will not abandon his soul to Hades. Or, that's another word for death. So God would not abandon his soul to death. So he's going to live and he's going to die, but he's not going to stay dead. And and then he says in the parallel to that, he says, or let your Holy One see corruption. Holy or corruption speaks of decay. That's the result of death. So God would not let his Holy One to have his body decay. So that doesn't make any sense because David was a real human, right? I mean, David died, and what happened to his body? It really decayed. It died. There's the tomb. You can go to Israel even today, and they have a tomb to David, whether he's 
his body was in there or not, we don't know. But we know he definitely died, right? And he's supposed to have his body decay. So who is this speaking of? Everything that we know that is a living organism dies at some point. There's a boy and his dad who were out in the front lawn of their house, and they saw a possum there. And, you know, when you see a possum, you don't know if the possum is alive or dead, right? And so the dad comes up to it and takes a little stick and pokes it like this. And the dad says, yeah, I think it's dead. I think it looks like it's, you know, there's some decomposition there. It looks like there's some bugs, you know, whatever. And the son says, wait, dad, I'll be right back. So his son ran inside the house, and he brought out the cat and the labradoodle. And so the cat, he had the cat go up, and the cat pawed the possum, and, and the possum didn't move. And then the labradoodle went up, and he sniffed the possum. And the boy said, yes. Dad, for certain, this dog, or this uh, possum is dead. And the dad was confused. And he says, "Um, how do you know that? And he says, duh, dad. I just confirmed it with a CAT scan and a lab test. (laughs) We know that everything decays, right? So David was saying something here that's strange. There's someone who's going to live and die and their body's not going to decay. They're, they're going to be somehow brought back to life. In fact, look at verse 27. David speaks of this one who will not see decay as God's holy one. Well, that speaks of the Messiah. The holy one is the Messiah. Jesus or, is the Christ who was to come. And so you can see down in verse 29, David was giving here a prophecy of the death and resurrection of the Messiah. Verse 29, the Bible says, Brothers... Peter preached, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one on his, one of his descendants on his throne. That was a promise God made to him. He foresaw and spoke of the, listen, the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. Isn't that amazing to think about? The prophecy of the resurrection right there. And Peter demonstrated to us that that David prophesied that one of his ancestors would live, but he would not see decay. In other words, he would be resurrected. He would be resurrected. And so how do we know Jesus is Lord? Well, his death and his resurrection were prophesied and came true. Prophecy is a big word. Maybe not that big of a word, but it's a Bible word. And basically it means this, that God tells us history before it happens. God tells us history before it happens. You know, we don't know what tomorrow is going to hold, do we? We don't know what next year is going to hold. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. Yesterday we had a friend call us and she told us, she's about our age, a little younger. She told us that she has cancer. We had a church member who had a tree fall on him. Could never see that one coming, right? I mean, we prayed for Donna for all these months or over the, all these weeks here, right? But we didn't expect her to be in the hospital for that long. Praise God that she's back, by the way. Make sure you get, give her an amen there when you see her. Praise God for the answered prayer. We don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. We had some people we're acquainted with at a ministry that we're really connected to. And at Christmas, this young couple from this ministry were driving home and they pulled out. And a car hit them, and the husband, the young husband, died. And father died. I think the thing that's 
difficult about those kind of situations is they're so shocking, right? That wasn't supposed to happen. And the point is, we don't know the future, but there is one who does, Jesus Christ. He knows the future because he holds the future. And he is directing all things for his purpose. Therefore, I can say with confidence here this morning that it is not by accident that anybody in here is sitting here and listening to this because I believe that Jesus is the one in charge. He's the Lord of history, which means he's in charge of time, which means he's in charge to bring you to this place. God has something for you today. Proof number four, Jesus proved to be Lord over resurrection with his resurrection. Look at verse 32. Peter preached, this Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. How do we know the resurrection's true? Oh, they were witnesses. Those right there were witnesses. There were hundreds of people who had actually witnessed the resurrection. In fact, go back to Acts chapter 1. Flip back to Acts 1. should be one page over. Acts 1 in verse 3, this account written by the historian Luke, was written to give an account of these proofs. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 3. He, that's Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical event. But friends, more importantly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most powerful event in the history of the world. Because in the resurrection, Jesus proved that he's the Lord over resurrection. He's the Lord over the resurrection of your soul and the resurrection of your body, which means that he can give your soul new life. He can give your body a new body after death and at his coming. After Jesus' death, He gave his spirit to his father. He went to paradise. Remember, he told the the thief on the cross, he says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. That thief trusted in him. And sure enough, Jesus went to paradise. But he didn't stay there. He came back three days later and walked out of that tomb with a resurrected body, proving that he is the resurrected Lord. Only Jesus, only Jesus can resurrect your soul. Because only Jesus has died, has gone to paradise and come back to overcome death. You can't give yourself life, spiritual life. You can't resurrect your own soul. No priest can do it for you. No pastor can do it for you. Your own good works can't resurrect your soul. Only Jesus is the Lord of death and can give you resurrection. An evangelist told a story once that he went to a a little town and there was a young little girl there and small town. And so he was trying to find his way around and wanted to see if he could find the post office so he could drop something off. And so he saw this little girl and he said to this little girl, he said, little girl, uh, where's the post office at? You know, have you ever been to the post office? Do you know where it's at? And she looked at him confused and thought, it's a small town. Like everybody knows where the post office is. And she said, of course I've been there. And so she gave direction. She says, right around the corner and told him where to go. And so he said, oh, okay, well, you know, I want to invite you as well to come to my evangelistic crusade tonight. Why don't you come over and you can hear the gospel. You can hear how you can get to heaven. Then she looked at him confused again. She says, have you been to heaven? 
Well, he said, no, I have not. She says, if you couldn't give me directions and find, or you couldn't find the post office, then how can you find heaven? If you've never been to heaven, how can you give me directions? So her smart little comment made its point. And that is, why would you trust someone with directions if they don't even know where they're going, right? But especially if they've never been there. But you know what, friends? We have someone who's been there, who's come and gone back. And who is that? That's Jesus Christ. In fact, this was a question actually his disciples asked him. Thomas said to him, Lord, before his death, okay, so this is, these, these are things that are going to happen, but Lord, how do we know where you're going? And how can we know the way? Like, how can we know the way to the Father? How can we know the way to heaven? And Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Nobody goes to the Father but through me. See, Jesus died and went to heaven and came back in a resurrected body so he could take us with him. He knows the way. He is the way. And we trust him in his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection proved he can resurrect your soul. His resurrection proved that he can reconcile you to God. He can forgive your sin. He can give you new life. He can remove your guilt and give you his righteousness. We call this, we call this resurrection of the soul in biblical terms, we call this regeneration or new birth. You might've heard of someone say, you must be born again. Well, that's actually came from Jesus. Jesus was talking to a man named Nicodemus and he was telling this man how someone could enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, you must be born again. In other words, the Holy Spirit must give you new life. Your soul must be resurrected with new life. The Bible declares that we can only find life in Christ through this resurrection. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friend, every one of us in here, we need a time in our life when Jesus Christ resurrects our soul and gives us his spirit, forgives our sin. I told you earlier about Jordan, Jordan Wilson. At the age of 25, he found himself very low. He found himself homeless. He was enslaved to his addictions. He ruled his own life as his own Lord, and he was miserable. So he decided to go to his parents' house and knock on the door and see if they let him sleep on the couch that night. Typically, he wasn't allowed to do that because he was a drug dealer and he did drugs himself. But he knocked on the door and his mom answered the door because moms are the softies, right? Many times. And she said, you know, you can sleep on the couch tonight if you promise to come to church on Easter morning. So he promised so he could, you know, have a bed to sleep in that night. So he came on Easter morning, sat in a service, much like you're sitting here this morning. He heard the gospel preached. And as he was listening, he felt his heart gripped by the guilt of his sin. And the tight grip of, of guilt was upon his soul. And he longed there to be freed from his sin, to be freed from the guilt that he felt. At the end of the service, the pastor talked to the church and called the people to come to Christ and to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And Jordan followed the call of Romans 10, 9 that day. He came and talked to the pastor. The pastor said, if you call, 
if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Jordan, that day on Easter, gave his life to Jesus Christ. What a wonderful day to do that, isn't it? Resurrection Sunday. The Lord freed Jordan from drugs and alcohol and slavery to sin. And some of you might think in here, uh, is that possible? It is, because Jesus is Lord. And five years later, Jordan is now a development director at an addiction center and a youth director at a church. His soul has been saved, and he looks forward to the day when his body will be resurrected with the Lord too. How can a person be forgiven and be saved? Well, look down in verse 36. Peter gives the invitation here. He gives the conclusion. Verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And verse 37 says, And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What happened to them? They were cut to the heart. They felt the weight of their sin. They felt the guilt of their sin. Have you felt that guilt in your heart? That's the Holy Spirit convicting you. And, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What were they to do? Repent. And that's a word that you might see on signs, you know, the street corners. What does that word mean? It basically means to change your thinking in regard to something. To change your thinking and your beliefs in regard to something and go a different direction. What was to change in regard to their thinking? What was it? What was the sermon about? The Lordship of Jesus Christ. I mean, they were to confess that they were living their lives as their own lords they were rejecting the lordship of Jesus Christ and his ownership, and they were submitting to him as their savior and their Lord and calling on him as such and trusting in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in verse 41, 3,000 souls were saved that day. That means 3,000 people turned their backs on their works-based religion on their self-ownership, and 3,000 people declared that Jesus Christ is the Lord of their life. And they gave their life to Jesus Christ on that day. Notice he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Baptism was an outward symbol of what God was doing inwardly in their heart. Baptism doesn't save. He wasn't saying get wet and something happens to you. It was just a way of showing everyone who you're trusting. When they were to get in that water, they were telling everyone, I don't believe like this anymore. I'm not the Lord of my life anymore. And I'm actually trusting the one who died for me. They were put under the water, brought back up, who was buried and rose again. That's the Jesus I'm trusting. What does God promise to those who repent and believe in Jesus? What does it say in that verse? For the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God will forgive you. He'll release you from the penalty of eternal death and separation and he will resurrect your soul with the power of the Holy Spirit and enable you to have fellowship with God. The greatest joy in this world. Has your soul 
been resurrected by Jesus Christ. Acts 16.31, the Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved. I want to invite anyone in here that is not submitting their heart to Jesus Christ, you can call on him today and be saved. And let's just finish with this last point. There it is. Jesus proved to be Lord over personal and spiritual transformation. Look at verse 32. And this Jesus God raised up And of all that, we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God the Father there. So he's talking about God the Father. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that's Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not descend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. So what Peter is saying here is one of the proofs that Jesus is Lord is how the Holy Spirit transforms a person's life. Jesus is now in heaven sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's a place of authority. And he is exercising his lordship on this earth. How does he do that? Well, he sends his spirit. He pours out his spirit and his spirit transforms lives. His spirit saves your soul, gives you new life. And then he transforms your mind and your beliefs and your actions. What changed a scared, lying fisherman like Peter into a bold, truth-telling preacher of the gospel? What changed him? What transformed a a greedy, thieving tax collector like Matthew to give up that greedy lifestyle to be a humble follower of Christ? How did a self-righteous person like Paul, who tried to follow all the religious rules and all the laws, what caused him to give all that up and to claim the righteousness of Jesus Christ as his own as a humble apostle? How is it possible that 3,000 religious Jews came to a festival in Jerusalem to to exercise their religion, to do the works that they thought would give them righteousness before God. They turned their backs on that to follow Jesus Christ. How is it that a guy like Jordan, who followed the lust of his own heart, how could he now have freedom in Christ? It's only through this, the Lord Jesus in heaven unleashed the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. And the transforming work of the Holy Spirit is proof that he is Lord and he can transform your life. Church, the Holy Spirit should be transforming our lives. The Lordship of Jesus Christ should make our marriages better. The Lordship of Jesus Christ should cause us to work harder. The Lordship of Jesus Christ should cause our entertainment habits to be pure. Because Jesus is Lord of our our thoughts, our minds should think on what is true. Because Jesus is Lord of our finances, our money should be stewarded by God's children. Because Jesus is Lord of your heart and your attitude, you should honor your authorities. And I think hopefully you get the point. If Jesus truly is Lord of your life, then he rules your life. And if he's not Lord of your life, His call is for you to submit to him, 
You might say, well, I, I call on the Lord. I claim that he is my Lord. Here's a warning that we must remember as we conclude this morning. Not everyone, Jesus says, who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just because you call Jesus Lord, just because you prayed some prayer when you were a child, it doesn't mean that you're going to be entering into glory. You get that? Because it's not actually about just what you say. It's about what you believe. And what you believe will determine how you live. And those who truly believe and surrender their all to Jesus Christ, the Bible says, they're saved. Jesus is Lord. And he proved it with his death, his resurrection, and the transformational power of his Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.